Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. Yes, we could go to surgery and we could perform brain surgery, but this may not save your loved one in the way that you remember them. And I think having that conversation and allowing patients to pass with dignity, I think is really important too. And that's one thing I've learned a lot throughout my career and the way that you know I advise families and is really is really that is sometimes pulling out all the stops when we get to our advanced age may not be the best option. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Dr. Sherry Dewan is on the show today, a full-time board-certified neurosurgeon practicing in Chicago, who is one of the roughly 200 board-certified women neurosurgeons in the United States. And today we're talking about her journey into neurosurgery that she's penned in a fantastic book, Cutting a Path. And despite the very specific experience of her journey to becoming a specialist surgeon in a male-dominated field, battling gender and ethnic barriers, her story is one that I think many people can connect with. Being a medic, a mother, a mentor, and a human, Sherry shares the highs and tragedies of her work whilst juggling her role outside the hospital. She gives us an insight into her coping mechanisms that she's developed throughout her career, including things like mindful moments, yoga, and even manifesting, something that I thought to be quite unusual and that challenges the preconception of the stoic neurosurgeon who has hardened themselves to the reality of the job and removes the emotion from their day to day. I really hope you leave today's conversation feeling inspired to do your own work on continually questioning purpose and practicing reflection as a blueprint for both working and living more fully. And you can find Dr. Sherry Dewan's book in all good bookstores. It's a wonderfully honest and refreshing read that I thoroughly enjoyed myself. There is a trigger warning on today's show. We do mention child bereavement and I've put some links in the show notes if you need help with any of that as well. Remember, you can check out this podcast on YouTube where we're putting lots more content. Also, you can check out the subscription to the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter every single week. I share a recipe, something to read, something to listen to, something to watch, as well as some mindfully curated content and delicious food. And you can download the Doctor's Kitchen app right now for free. Check out all the features that we're adding. And yes, we are working on an Android version as well. Onto the podcast. Before we get started, here is a quick word from the people who make this podcast possible. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Shuri, it's uh, 
so lovely to have you back on the podcast. And since we last chatted, a lot has happened since the pandemic and you've written this wonderful book. I wanted to get right into it. Um, in recounting your journey uh, of becoming a neurosurgeon, what are the main things, what are the main takeaways you want people to, to get from cutting a path? Thanks, Rupi, for having me on again. It's really great to connect and see you after all these years. Um, yeah, you know, writing the book was really a journey for me that kind of began about 10 years ago. And I was kind of finishing up my residency in neurosurgery at the time. And, you know, one of few women in, in the program that had gone through. And I just felt like I had to share the story um, with people. And, you know, the main takeaways from it are really you know, really, I'll use the subtitle, you know, it's, it's really purpose, discipline and determination, which is kind of the, the three hallmarks of the book. And, you know, I'll go back to, you know, purpose first, which is the first word in the subtitle, because um, I think it's important, you know, we always talk about finding your passion, finding your passion. And I truly believe, yes, passion is, is a key component. But really, I think as a physician, it's really about your purpose. You know, why are you here? Are you here to help people? Do you enjoy being around patients? Do you like people? You know, do you want to help people? And I think um, for me, that was my purpose. And it's always kind of been throughout. Um, and I think that was my main goal in putting the book out was to tell people that we all have a purpose, whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, you know, a scientist um, in business, we all have a purpose on this earth. And I think identifying it and understanding our, our gifts and what we can give the world is, is very important. And so that's really why I wanted to put the book out is to inspire people um, and to show them using my story that, you know, really anything is possible if you truly put your mind to it. Mm. I, I want to dive into this concept of purpose, actually, because in a lot of ways, I feel very fortunate and lucky to know what my purpose is, what my passion is, and how uh, I've been able to construct a life from you know my teenage years of really understanding what I wanted to do, you know, diving into the altruistic side, diving into the science side, and diving into that that patient connection side, like actually having those relationship with humans. How, for, for someone who's reading the book uh, or, or listening to this, how do they actually navigate exactly what that purpose is? Because I don't, I don't think this is just something for people. Uh, of a younger age to to understand i think it, it it's something that everyone at all stages of life should really be asking themselves and actually constructing a life whereby they can uh honestly answer uh, to themselves i am living a life with with purpose yeah and that's a great question because i think purpose can change as you go through life you know i mean i think you have um you know a purpose when you're a student right and this, the the purpose is to get good grades and learn. And then there's a purpose, you know, when you kind of move through life and you have a family and then there's a purpose to provide. And, you know, and I think, um, and then, you know, when you have your children and you're watching them grow and then there's a purpose to, you know, provide guidance and advice and watch them live out their dreams. And then maybe there's a stage where they're no longer in the home and, you know, and, and, you know, and then there's all sorts of alternatives, right? Like maybe there's no children in the picture or maybe there's, you know, or maybe you're caring for an elderly parent or I mean, there's so many different scenarios. And I mean, I think purpose can change. Purpose is malleable. Our lives are malleable. Our lives are dynamic. They're constantly changing. Um, I think really looking at what gets you up in the morning, what makes you, you know, want to get up, what makes you look at the sun and say, today's going to be a beautiful day. And what are the key components of um, that sort of living and that sort of lust for living that you have inside you, you know? And, um, I think once you identify that in whatever way it is, I think that's really, you know, the, the beauty of where life comes from and the beauty of where living comes from. Um, and it may not be easy to get to that purpose, you know, for everybody, because we can be so bogged down with the day to day and the grind and, you know, and I think taking a step back and really examining, you know, self-examining and saying, you know, what are the things that make me tick? What are the things that I love? What are the things I enjoy? You know, what am I, what is my passion? What is my purpose? What are the, what are all these things? And I think 
once you identify that one thing, you know, you go for it 110%. Let's, let's use your specific example as a a way in which you, you really dived into your purpose and, and, and your passion, because, you know, as a US born Indian American facing all the obstacles that you had to overcome throughout your journey of becoming a neurosurgeon uh, in the States, you know, how, how did you a first find your purpose and how did you know it was neurosurgery considering all the hoops that you had to jump through even more so uh, not only as a US born Indian American, but as a, as a female as well, you know, it's, that there, there are so many challenges that you've articulated in your book. What, how did you know that that was your true purpose and that you weren't dissuaded from going down a different path? Yeah, I mean, I think I always knew, even as a child, that I wanted to do something with the brain. I was absolutely fascinated by neuroscience. And, you know, you know, going to the library, checking out books on medicine, checking out books on science, and always really wanting to, at the core of it, understand this mysterious organ, you know, that holds all of our hopes, thoughts, and dreams, and, you know, just truly fascinated by it. And, you know, as I went through, you know, school, it was just, you know, working in neuroscience research labs, always involving myself in some sort of, you know, brain research or cognitive research. And, um, and then, you know, in the book, in the second chapter, I go into really the pivotal moment, which was my own mother, suffering from a ruptured aneurysm when, you know, I was in my twenties and, um, you know, my mother was this tigress, if you will, of a woman. I mean, she was on every board you can imagine. She was very active in the community. She was a professor of political science, a PhD. And, you know, one morning she got us, you know, developed a severe headache and was told essentially that she had a ruptured brain aneurysm. And, Um, That's when I met a neurosurgeon for the first time, who is Dr. Johnson, who I talk about a lot in the book, Um, and he saved her life. And that was kind of a pivotal moment for me, because although I had been so interested in neuroscience, here was a living example in front of me of a save. He had just saved my mother, and his skill and his talent um, was so inspirational to me that I thought, this is my path. I want to save other people's mothers. That was my goal. And so, you know, I went after that goal, um, knowing that whatever I did with this profession was so impactful to people that, um, that I would have the skills and the knowledge just like he did, you know, and the talent to be able to do that. And so, um, it was a real life example, you know, really for me. And I think even in the times where I struggled and the challenges that I had, whether it was, you know, gender discrimination or ethnicity, you know, and and I did list some of those examples in the book. Um, I always knew I had a path, you know, and um, there's one example in the book that was kind of early on was when I was a medical student and, you know, I had invested all this time and energy in applying for neurosurgery and I knew it was pie in the sky. You know, I knew it was going to be so incredibly difficult to match. It's 50% match rate. I had done all these sub internships and I was, you know, at this interview and, you know, this very, you know, very well-known respected neurosurgeon, you know, looked at my application and said to me, neurosurgery is really only for white males, you know, and closed my application. And, you know, what do you do with that information? I was in my twenties. I had invested so much time and energy in this. I loved it. And I had a real life example of my own mother sitting right in front of me who was alive, you know? And so, you know, at that moment, I think, and I think many people have that moment, you know, many people have naysayers or people that don't believe in them, or maybe you don't even really truly believe in yourself, you know, at times, but, um, you know, and, and so I think the, the, the ideas of overcoming those obstacles and, and, and powering forward, despite the fact that you may have people that don't believe in you. It's really, really, you know, important. And, um, you know, and I, and I think at, at any stage of your life, whether it's as a student or as a parent, um, a grandparent, you know, any stage of our lives. 
I remember reading that moment in in the book actually, and you use a, a French saying to describe something of having a sort of a, a, a quip, a comeback. But actually, when the moment has passed, I can't remember for the life of me what that French saying is. I'm not too sure if you remember yourself either. But um, uh, I, I've had those moments many a times. Not obviously in that situation, but that that sort of uh, expression that that needs to come to mind. Um, uh, of 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 having something to to say back to that, but you must have been gobsmacked. But at, at that point, you know, particularly as someone who's in their twenties, perhaps is still gaining a lot of confidence, trying to muster uh, a presence for themselves. I mean, what? How did you re- recover from from instances like that? Yeah, I mean, it was um, it was one of these situations where you know, before that, I had a lot of people tell me you know, don't go into neurosurgery or don't pursue this field because you're a woman, you, you won't, you won't be able to get married. You'll end up divorced. You won't be able to have children. So I'd had all of these people who weren't in the profession telling me that, but what I guess what was really challenging was now to have somebody who was in the profession telling me that, you know? And so that was a moment where I thought, oh my gosh, you know, is he correct? You know, should I not be applying for this residency? Because I'm Indian because I'm a woman, you know, is he, is he correct? And, you know, I had this moment where I second guessed myself and, um, it really was my support structure. It was my parents. It was my now husband, um, who were like, no, that's ridiculous, you know, and didn't even give it a second thought and just that's ridiculous. Stay on your path, you know, hold your course. And I think, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book, too, is finding your, you know, your collective, finding your people, finding that your board of directors, if you will, the people that you go to for, you know, your pieces of advice and bounce things off of that you trust. And they have no ulterior motives other than wanting to see you excel. Um, And so they've kind of been my board of directors throughout my life and throughout the book I write about, you know, talking to them when I have these very low moments Um, you know, another very low moment was, you know, when I became pregnant for the second time and I was a resident and, you know, pregnancy wasn't popular in the residency program. It wasn't done. And, um, how that, you know, affected me in terms of my colleagues and how they weren't supportive of that and, um, me wanting to be a mom and, you know, trying to, trying to balance all of those hats and all of those roles and, Um, And so, you know, that's another, I think, key component in in the book is not just the initial going into the residency program, but remaining in it and, you know, having moments where I felt I may quit, you know, which is what what I had written about, you know, when I was when I was a sixth year resident. Talk a little bit more about the unpopularness of uh, pregnancy during residency for our listeners, because I don't think a lot of people would understand the um, psychology behind that and perhaps the environment that uh, residents across all different specialties, not just within surgery, uh, but in in medicine and and across the pond here in the UK as well, um, those sort of unspoken uh, cultural norms um, that perhaps non-medics wouldn't really, really be privy to. Yeah, I mean, I think pregnancy in medicine in general Um, has always been viewed, and I hope this is changing, and I think it's changing, but has always been viewed as a negative. Um, It's always been, you know, especially for surgical subspecialties, you know, well, how much time are you going to take off? How are you going to make up the call? You know, you won't be able to stand in the operating room for lengthy periods of time and do the procedures. So it's always been viewed as a negative. And um, I hope and I feel that it's changing. I think it's changing slowly, but I do feel like it is changing from my experiences that were, you know, a decade ago. Um, you know, the physicality of pregnancy is very difficult. There is water retention, you know, your legs are swelling, you know, your blood volume is increasing, you have, you know, hormones raging through your body, you haven't slept, you've been fatigued. And, you know, there's a lot of experiences that I had during both my pregnancies as a resident that you know, went beyond the, you know, psychological to the fit, you know, the physical aspects of the pregnancies are very demanding. And I I truly feel like the pregnancies were the hardest things I've ever done. 
in my residency, just because literally going into work every day and dealing with, you know, getting up at five o'clock in the morning and rounding and taking care of patients and operating all day. And then, you know, leaving at the end of the day and my legs are like tree trunks, you know, as I'm walking out and, um, you know, so that, that's one component. And then I think the other component is the psychological stress of not being supported at your, at your program and how that affects you also, you know? And so, you know, in the book, I did talk about people that did support me and I had a senior neurosurgeon who was very kind and, um, you know, was really a champion for me. And, and if I didn't have his support, I think it would have been, um, all that more challenging. You know, and so again, I'll kind of go back to the um, the collective, the board of directors, the people who uh, want you to excel. Because I think you need to kind of identify and find those people um, and, and draw from them and draw strength from them. Yeah, yeah. I I wish I I could say that it's it's changing for the better. I agree, it's probably very slow. But the the isolated incidents that are closer to home for me. Um, don't really speak to that uh, actually like what, one of my best friends is um, an ENT surgeon and when she got pregnant um, uh, and, and you know, intentionally and planned and stuff she had very many of the similar questions that were posed to you as well about time off and and how people are going to be um, restructured within the team especially within the NHS where we're strapped for doctors across all different specialties um and she was subject to a lot of bullying and she's one of the best ENT surgeons in the country and the same with one of my other good friends uh, who does um uh obstetrics and gynecology you know the same things and some very frank conversations with other female surgeons uh, about you know freezing one's eggs and and actually having to jump through all these other obstacles that we as uh, as men who are not going to be bearing children don't have to do. So there's always going to be an inherent disparity in the escalation of one's careers just based on uh, our, our life's opportunities and, and decisions. So it's, it's, it, it is slow, but uh, unfortunately I, I feel like it's, we're still stuck in the, in the dark ages when it comes to that facet in, in medicine. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I do agree with you. I mean, I, I, I do see some changes on, on, you know, at least the surgical side. I feel like it is a little bit more accepted, but I think the thing that bothers me the most is that the minute a surgical resident gets pregnant, it it's perceived as if she's not committed to the field. And I think, um, because of, oh, well, you're going to be a part-time surgeon. And, you know, and I, I felt that when I became pregnant, especially with my second, I was kind of, it was kind of, oh, well, she's not committed or, you know, she's going to be a part-time neurosurgeon and, and everyone just assumed that. And, you know, I have three kids now, you know, and I'm full-time it's, you know, so I, I think the perception and the reality can be very different. And I, and I, and so I would say, you know, never let anybody put you in a box, you know, never let anybody tell you what you are capable of or what you are not capable of, because you only know that from you. Right. And, and, um, so I think, you know, and I, I hope, I really hope that in the next 10 years, we do see a change because motherhood and bringing life into the world is one of the most incredible things I've ever done. And um, for women who are doctors to not want to do that for fear of retaliation or a lack of support would be very, um, would be a very sad commentary on medicine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's very well put. Um, I just on the subject of motherhood, I do want to go back to your mum's role and everything here because beyond being the inspiration for neurosurgery and obviously her uh, uh unfortunate experiences, like she sounds like a, a a very uh uh powerful influence on you. Uh, you know, perhaps where the the tiger analogy sort of comes from. Can, can you talk a bit more about your your mother and perhaps how she uh, instilled the the other elements of this book, the the discipline, the determination, perhaps. Yeah, my mother was and still is today just a very powerful force. Um, she really propelled my career. She told me I could do anything I wanted in life, and um, you know, never never allowed me to back down if there was ever something that was in my way. And I think having her and watching her even battle her own health conditions. 
and still today be such an active, functional person, um, it's been really inspirational, you know, and I think everybody in their life needs somebody like that, where they're looking at them and saying, oh my God, if this person can do it, I can do it, you know? Um, so, you know, I think the biggest thing was she, you know, obviously instilled education, the, the love of academics in me. Um, but she also, you know, taught me a lot about values and taught me a lot about, um, you know, never backing down and being determined. And when people were telling, you no, if you didn't believe them, you just keep doing what you're supposed to do, you know? And, um, you know, there were so many examples that she'd given me of like, um, there's one in the book I, I loved that she had given me um, about track stars, the women that run track and, you know, they have long nails and long hair and, you know, manicures and all that stuff. And so you would never think, you know, why would a track star look like that? And same goes for, you know, how I looked in neurosurgery. I mean, you know, I was a girl, I, you know, didn't defeminize myself because I was in a male dominated field. And, um, you know, so her examples of like, look at the other women in the world who, you know, do what they do and, and they don't look the type, you know, um, one of the things that I really loved about the book is that I've had so many people reach out to me throughout the world who, you know, I feel like it's becoming more normalized to be a woman, to be ethnic, an ethnic minority. Um, and I hope my story can do that for women. I hope that there are women who, who say, you know, I may not fit the mold, but I really want to go into this profession and, or I want to go into surgery in general, or, or I want to do something that is unexpected of me, you know, and have the confidence to do that by looking at my story and seeing that, you know, I was able to get, you know, where I wanted to go ultimately, you know, despite all of these things. Yeah. And that, that, that discipline element, um, that obviously is required, uh, in medicine, like how else do you instill that in the book? Because as a, as a central pillar of, what people should be expecting from from your work and, and your experience and the um, the biography of your of your journey thus far. Like, what other elements uh, have you have you dived into to to really sort of instill the, the discipline requirements for for your journey and and how might that be applicable to somebody else? Yeah, I mean, I think the discipline aspect. You know, when you're in medicine, especially, we know all about discipline, delayed gratification, and I think above all, consistency. And, um, you know, I think when we're consistent in our work, it's, you know, we know we have to be somewhere at a certain amount of time, we're there, <laughs> you know, the work has to be done with excellence. Um, you know, whether you're taking care of patients or whatever you're doing, there needs to be a consistency and a discipline in the way that you conduct yourself, you know, professionally in your, in your workplace. Um, you know, because in many instances, you know, there's something that happens at two o'clock in the morning and all of a sudden you're in the operating room, you know, taking care of somebody and everything has been thrown out the window in terms of the logistics of the day. And, you know, so I think um, for me, the discipline has really come from, you know, a, a daily practice that's involved, you know, meditation and yoga that is very consistent. Um, I typically like to meditate and have a quiet moment for myself at least twice a day. Uh, but it's interesting because when I was a teenager, I had gone to visit my grandmother in India and I met a yoga master. She had used to, she used to have these yoga masters come to her home. And um, he taught me this visualization technique that I kept with me throughout my whole life. And he was really teaching me transcendental meditation, although he didn't call it that at the time, but he was really teaching me this concept of manifestation and visualization of a path. And kind of looking at a goal as afar and then, you know, going through your, the steps of reaching the goal. And so I, I really held on to that um, throughout my life. And so I, you know, twice a day will sit down and have quiet time um, with this daily practice and, you know, visualize what I want, manifest it. Um, you know, I was once told the universe is benevolent and um, is on your side, you know, and I, and I really believe that I believe you know, you're going to have ups and downs in life. You know, you're going to have times of extreme stress. You're going to have times things aren't going your way. I think if you truly believe the universe is supportive and benevolent, 
um, you know, I think you'll get to where you need to go. And, you know, the yoga has really centered me. I do a daily yoga practice, even if it's five or 10 minutes. Um, somebody recently taught me about chair yoga. They said, you know, Dr. Dewan, you can actually do yoga in your chair while you're at the office. So I thought that was kind of cute, you know? <laughs> um, you know, so I don't know if you've tried it, Rupi, but um, I, don't, I haven't tried chair, chair yoga. Actually, yoga. No, tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you know, more about toning your core while you're sitting in a chair and it's for people that are more office based. And so I think the daily practice of meditation, yoga, um, healthy eating, healthy living. I mean, you know, you know all the more about healthy cooking and, and you know, how important our diet is to uh, how we function at our best. Um, so I think incorporating all of those things has really led to the discipline that I have in my daily job, which is, you know, at its core, really, you know, opening the most sacred organ in the body and operating in it with confidence. And, um, you know, I think that comes from centering yourself in your own life and also in your personal life. You know, I like to be very centered in my own personal life. And, you know, someone had once told me that uh, surgeons in general like to have equilibrium, you know, and and I, I think that really rings true. I think if things aren't good at home, it's very hard for things to be good at work. And especially in neurosurgery, because we're dealing with, you know, the, the most sacred organ in the body and because our work is so important, I think um, it's even it's even it's even you know the, the most important component of what we do. I want listeners to get a real understanding of uh, just how disciplined you are to maintain a daily practice like that, mindful moments, because your job as a neurosurgeon is manic. It is just uh, like, you know, hugely uh, intense uh, procedures, but lengthy procedures as well and call-outs at all times of day in the middle of the night and stuff. So why don't you walk us through, for, for listeners who, who wouldn't know about new, neurosurgery, like what a, a day could entail and at what points do you have the discipline and that sort of um, that the rigor to be able to put in to to slot in those 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 daily practices because that for me just hearing that is phenomenal but I don't think many people will understand why yeah yeah so um, you know I cover a hospital we cover trauma so what can happen sometimes is patients can come in and it's a very uh, tenuous situation and someone has to go to the operating room immediately it's life it's truly life and death. Um, you know, there's been instances where I've taken care of children that have been hit by cars, um, and they have bleeding in the brain and need emergency surgery. I've also taken care of the elderly that have had strokes. Uh, but a lot of these things happen in emergency situations. So, you know, one minute you could be enjoying a coffee and the next minute you're rushing off to the operating room. So it's, it's almost like your mind and your body, uh, go into panic mode, you know, and, and, um, so I've kind of trained myself through the years of not getting into panic mode. You know, it's a very controlled situation where, you know, you know, yes, there's somebody dying and yes, I'm the one to save them. But at the same time, it's, you know, become so rote with muscle memory and, you know, that, you know, going into the operating room and performing that type of operation is um, it's second nature at this point. But I think mentally centering myself allows me to be able to take care of the emergencies um, and remain calm and focused while I'm doing it. And I think part of that um, that process of, of remaining calm is not even uh, a practice in the moment. It was It's after the moment. And I, I remember reading in your book, actually, about how you have this sort of traumatic imagination of you with the scar on your scalp when you were thinking about your mother in the hospital um, and I don't know whether that was a recurring dream but the sort of trauma of of that sort of seems to have imprinted on you as you you're going through your 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 training and your specialty and that sort of conjured a question for me as to how you would deal with um, something so traumatic as you know deal, dealing with 
child fatalities and and obviously the um the the injuries that you, you see on a, on a week by week basis like how do you compartmentalize that and how do you deal with the the relaxation afterwards as well when when these things are happening so so frequently for you yeah that's a great question i think that's actually as a doctor, not dealing with those things is what contributes to, I think, a lot of our burnout, you know, as a profession. And um, there's a chapter I have in the book, which is put a pin in it. And the chapter is basically about how when you're dealing with the trauma and you're in the moment, um, you know, and there's a scene in the book where I have an accident victim come in and she um, had part of her scalp had been taken off by, by basically a barrier. Um, and there was glass and everything in her brain and how I was tasked as the neurosurgery resident with removing the pieces of glass from her brain in the, in the emergency room. And as I'm doing it, um, she wakes up and starts having a conversation with me. And so in the moment, here I am as a young neurosurgery resident um, and the moment I'm like in a twilight zone moment, you know, where I'm like, is this a bad horror movie? You know, like what is happening? But I also know that in order for me to help her, I have to step outside of it, take the glass out of her brain, get her upstairs to the operating room and do what I'm supposed to do. So it's this, um, and she, you know, and she did great the patient did well, you know? And, and so it's, it's this put a pin in it. It's okay. Focus on the task. This may seem completely out of sorts, crazy Twilight Zone, you know, Hannibal Lecter type of situation, but, you know, take care of the patient, deal with it, and then process later. And so after these really kind of horrific accidents or just wild situations that I had, I would go back to it, you know, whether it was six hours later, 12 hours later, the next day kind of internalize it and say, like, what did I experience here? And how did that make me feel? And, um, and I think just doing that is, was my way of coping with some of the things that I saw. And I think we should all do that, you know, and, and not just in medicine, just in general, because I think the tendency is just to push it down, push it down and, um, you know, not acknowledge it. And I think that, uh, that chapter is really speaks to that. Yeah, I, I love that expression, putting a pin in it. Um, but I, I, I and I, I agree with you. I think a lot of times we just put pins in things, and we actually don't unpin them a little bit later on, and actually process exactly what we've pinned there, what we experienced, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I wonder if you can give us a bit of a, an insight into what it's like when you do unpin it, when you do reflect on your day or your week and, and how you deal with, with those quite challenging memories and, and experiences. Yeah. And it, it took me, it took me a long time, especially as a neurosurgeon, you know, we do see a lot of death. And when I started my residency, it was very hard for me because, um, I had never experienced, you know, dealing with the patient who came into the emergency room, who was essentially, there wasn't much you could do to save, you know? And so, um, that was really hard for me as a young resident dealing with the death, dealing with the sadness, um, having to tell families, you know, their loved one was brain dead or having patients that, you know, I knew what weren't going to make it in the ICU. And, but I think through the years it's become, um, you know, knowing that they got the best of me, that I gave them the best that I could. And um, also allowing patients in many ways to pass away with dignity because, you know, one of the things at least, you know, and, and I know in some countries, probably maybe the UK, like in the United States, it's everybody always wants to pull out all the stops. It, you know, even if the patient is like 95 years old, you know, and sometimes it's sitting down with the family and just saying, let's be real. You know, it's a situation that there's no quality of life here. You know, yes, we could go to surgery and we could perform brain surgery, but this may not save your loved one in the way that you remember them. And I think having that conversation, um, and allowing patients to pass with dignity, I think is really important too. And that's one thing I've learned a lot throughout my career and the way that, you know, I advise families and, um, 
is, is really, is really that is, you know, sometimes pulling out all the stops when we get to our advanced age may not be the best option. So. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we used to have something called the lipid care pathway. Um, it's been succeeded by, uh, another series of protocols, um, that can be locally agreed as well. I'm, I'm really, uh, um, privileged to have experienced such good palliative care teams in the hospitals that I've worked uh, in. And actually during my time in Australia, it was um, sort of the opposite, actually, probably similar to what you're describing in the US, actually, where it is a case of we will operate on anyone, we will throw all the drugs, all the interventions, and sort of leave the quality of life or the, uh, the, the absolute extension of life to, to sort of one side, um, because really you just want to be giving 100% or 110% in many cases uh, uh, all the time. And I think frank conversations with, with, with patients' families um, is, is certainly the way to go. But it, it is very difficult, as I'm sure you can attest to, to have those conversations because you don't want to ever be seen as giving up or, or you know, not putting enough effort in, but actually you've got to be it's beyond realism. It's um, it's actually what what is in the best interests um of of the patient um, and you know it, it's funny you you were talking about having your 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 uh, board of directors because I remember reading in the book um there's a character called Doctor Peter I think who is a experienced neurosurgeon who who said something like uh your life can be surgery but your patients' lives aren't your life and as long as you can do that eight times out of ten you'll be all right. And I thought that was so touching because that's it's real because you know as much as we try, our patients' lives always do seep into ours. And I'm I'm wondering if that eight out of ten rule did apply to you, or perhaps it's been a, a bit more or less. I'm not too sure. What what? Why don't you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, he was. Um, I he's still in practice today. Is a great guy. Um, you know, and he, and I think he, what he was trying to tell me is you can't take it home with you. You know, I mean, because at the end of the day, we do what we do. We try to help. We do the best that we can to our ability. But, um, you know, we go home to our families and we go home to the people that we love. And although I love my patients um, and many of my patients have become friends and have become close to me. Um, at the end of the day, you know, I go home to my family. And, and so we can't take it home with us. I mean, we have to. You know, I, with my, with my family, the minute I walk into my home, I put on my mom hat, you know, the neurosurgeon hat <laughs> is left behind and the mom hat goes on and, you know, I'm their mother and I'm making their lunches and I'm, you know, driving them to sports. And so I think, you know, in so many ways, if we brought home everything from the hospital into our personal lives, into our home, I don't know if we'd be able to function as healthy individuals, um, you know, because, because we all need a balance. We all need, we all need a yin and a yang to our day and to our lives. And we all need, you know, to learn how to deal with all the facets that we have in front of us. Um, so that's something I've tried not to internalize a lot of the things that I've seen, a lot of the things that have happened. Um, some things stay with me a little longer than other things. You know, I'll have situations where, Maybe I felt a kinship with the patient a little bit over something and that lingered with me. Um, you know, I've attended funerals of patients that I've taken care of. Um, unfortunately, I've had to attend, you know, funerals of children that I've taken care of, accidents and things like that. But I try to just, um, I guess I try to say, you know, I did what I could for them in that moment and you know, be at peace with that. Yeah. You mentioned a few concepts here that I think are really important for people if they want to develop their own toolkit of uh, mental well-being. Um, one of the things you mentioned earlier was delayed gratification, uh, a concept that I'm obsessed with because I think it's so important, uh, particularly in today's environment of instant gratification uh via social media or via your shopping or you know there's no there's never a need to wait for anything these days and i think it expands to our careers and if you think about medicine the the arc of your career will span decades you know still in training um 
And the other thing is, you know, this ability to compartmentalize, this ability to put a pin in it and reflect on it later and ensure that you do reflect on it later and being disciplined about that. I wonder, you know, because you're operating obviously at the extreme end of these concepts, how would we essentially help listeners to this conversation develop their own mental health toolkit such that they can dive into these concepts of delayed gratification, putting a pin in it, uh, being able to compartmentalize uh, in their own lives, regardless of what situations, how extreme or or not extreme uh, that they're operating at? Like what, what sort of tips would you give people perhaps from that chapter to, to start practicing today? Yeah, I mean, I think um, a lot of times societally, especially now more than ever, um, you know, we're an instant society. We want everything right away, right now. You know, we want, you know, our food on time, our plane on time, you know, everything needs to be on time. And, and, and I think, you know, in medicine, as you know, it's such a journey and, um, you know, I do worry that people are going to say this is too lengthy of a career path for me, you know, and I, and I do worry that we're going to have less people interested in the field um, because of it. But what I would say is, you know, when you get to the place where you're you, where you wanted to go and it took you such a long time to get there, it feels just really incredible and, it, and it's like no other feeling in the world. And I don't think, you know, you don't need to be a brain surgeon to feel that you could do. It could be anything. You know, whether it's you want to challenge yourself athletically or you want to climb Kilimanjaro or even something, you know, like a goal of getting your child potty trained, you know, like my sister is currently doing, you know, I'm, I mean, there, there's so many, there's so many goals that you can have that, that just feel so amazing on the other end. And, um, and, you know, there's also a chapter about, um, what's temporary in the book. And, you know, there's one story where I was studying for the MCATs and all of my friends were going out and just having the time of their lives. And they were like, Sherry, why can't you come hang out with us? You know, and how come you can't go to this party and that party? And it was like this because I'm studying for medical school, you know, and that is our lives a lot of times um, in medicine, but in law, you know, I mean, if you're a lawyer and you're dealing with legal cases and I mean, in business, I mean, I have many friends in business who work harder than I do because, you know, they have to take meetings all over the world and, um, you know, delay gratification of, of their companies and things like that. And so um, I think it's applicable to any stage in your life and applicable to any field, really, this concept of um, thinking about when you get to that, that place where you've reached the pinnacle how great it's going to feel and how proud you are going to be of yourself for having stuck with it, you know, and there is no price that you can put on, on that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, it's a completely different feeling. Um, like a life moment. You, you mentioned goals and visualizing. I, I want to dive into that a bit actually, because I think, um, you know, I goal set, uh, I'm a big fan of visualization, uh, or, vision boarding or actually as um dr tara swat who's a friend of mine a psychiatrist and uh, someone who speaks quite a lot on the subject um she, she refers to it as action boarding because a vision board is sort of like you know something that you do and you don't really identify whether you can actually achieve it an action board is actually no I, i'm going to action these things these are going to happen at some point in my trajectory along life how, how do you set goals and what is currently on your action board? Uh, so I am a huge planner and goal setter. Obviously, it's it's a part of me. It's who I am. Um, every year, I actually write them down. So I make a list of list for myself. Okay. And it's divided up into personal and professional as kind of broad categories. Um, in professional, it can be anything. It can be, you know, I want to learn a new technique. Um, I want to go to, um, you know, a course in X city to learn something. Um, the personal side is also anything. I wanted to learn how to ski last year. So, you know, that was on my personal list. Um, and then the third category that kind of developed over time was the, so it's personal, professional, and then family is my third category. And then the family goals are, you know, what do I want for my family for the year? And I usually do three goals under each category. 
Um, and at the end of the year, I'll refer back to it, usually around October, just to make sure that we're kind of on track with where I want to be. So I'm a huge goal setter. Um, in terms of what's next, I mean, you know, I feel like in so many ways, I've always wanted to be a neurosurgeon. I've always wanted to be an author. I've always wanted to be a mother. And so um, and a good wife. I've been married 18 years. And um, so I feel like I've checked a lot of the boxes of things that really, um, you know, really I wanted. And, um, you know, what comes next? I mean, I have another book that's going to be hopefully coming out in the next two years. Um, but really, it's time for me to kind of help my kids realize their dreams and um, really be a light post for them to go out into the world and do wonderful things. And so you know, I think my next goal is really getting my family and my kids where, uh, where they need to be, which is kind of independent, um, functioning, wonderful human beings that get put out into the world to do great things. Yeah. I mean, you're, su you're such an inspiring character and a role model for people across the world. I mean, just reflecting on some of the things that we've talked about today, you know, goal setting, uh, a form of transcendental meditation, you know, setting time every single day to ensure you have mindful moments. Are you quite different to your colleagues? Because most of my friends in surgical specialties don't really talk to me about this kind of stuff. If I'm honest, they don't really seem to have these kind of uh, practices, uh, l least daily anyway. I mean, do you do you see yourself as quite um, uh, out of the ordinary compared to your, your neurosurgical colleagues or, or in medicine in general? You know, I think I'm probably somewhat different. Um, but I do feel like there are quite a few people that I'm starting to meet now that espouse to, you know, I mean, talking about mindful moments and meditation is actually more common now in the operating room than it ever used to be. I mean, I mean, 10 years ago, if you were to tell the OR, we're going to do a mindful moment before starting surgery, you'd probably be laughed out of the operating theater. <laughs> but now, actually, you know, there's a lot of neurosurgeons that espouse to it. There are people that have like a, a huddle or, you know, and um, I think it's actually a lot more common now than it used to be. And I think the old breed of surgeon is slowly kind of moving on and you know, new breeds of surgeons are coming up that are, you know, more about, you know, multifaceted life and, you know, really a, a balance that probably wasn't ever dreamt of, you know, 10 years ago. So I think there is a new crop of uh, a new generation of surgeons, at least that I see, um, you know, and some of my colleagues, my older colleagues, I feel that they also you know, I, I was listening to one of my senior colleagues talk about doing yoga the other day. And I thought, wow, I never would have pictured <laughs> that individual doing yoga. But, you know, it's there. And I think it's a lot more accepted now, you know. And, um, and, and I hope that, you know, me being around them has kind of allowed them to think about the career and the, the profession in a different way, too. So it's, it's interesting because like, uh, you know, I've been sort of talking about this for a little while and I never would have imagined some of my um, uh, friends doing this as well in, in different industries and uh, in, in different backgrounds. But it seems to be a thing that's creeping up. What What do you think is on the horizon that perhaps people aren't talking or doing right now uh, within medicine that might become commonplace in the next like five, 10 years? Well, I think at least in my profession, um I feel like, you know, just robotics and AI are even more important now. And mm. um, I think AI is going to just be a huge explosion for us in the next 10 to 15 years um, and how we use that. The other day I was talking to somebody and they were telling me how um, they had developed this AI technique to um, identify depression in patients. And... Um, when they were calling the suicide hotline and how they were using AI to kind of help screen through, this, through these patients. And I thought that was just incredible change in how we view um, mental health and medicine in general. And I, and I think, um, I think we're going to see more of that. Mm. You know? And I think we're going to become more well-rounded as doctors 
And, um, and I think our patients are also going to take more initiative on their health too, which I already see. In, in what way do you think they're taking more agency over their health that you're seeing today? I think, um, at least what I see a lot of is I see a lot of spinal disease and in many patients, at least in the U S you know, obesity is, is a major issue. Um, and you know, telling somebody that weight loss is going to be actually the key to their spine health can be a very difficult conversation in many ways, you know? And so now I think, you know, one of the things we instilled was actually a bariatric program and we have you know, situation where we're now referring patients to nutritionists and aqua therapy in the pool and bariatric surgery if needed, instead of just telling them, okay, let's go do a spinal operation and a, f- a fusion surgery on you that may or may not benefit. So, and people are receptive to that, you know, more so now than I think 10 years ago. So um, I do wonder if some of the, co- the COVID effect of people not wanting to be in the hospital per se, you know, as much plays into that where they're saying, wait a minute, let me look at my physique and let me see, you know, if my BMI is so high, maybe if I brought my BMI down, that would be beneficial to me, you know? So I think they are taking more agency over, um, over their own health. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's spilling over beyond, uh, just nutritional medicine for the likes of cardiovascular health. Um, you know, people are looking at their plates as a way to mitigate against mental health, uh, inflammatory disorders, um, spinal disease, as you've just said there. You know, are you seeing more sort of medically tailored meals or um, the the sort of studies looking at food as medicine? Because I, I feel that America is probably a little bit further uh, ahead of the curve than the, the UK on this Um probably out of uh, the, the the severity of the need based on the the metabolic illnesses that you know you guys have got a high prevalence of over there yeah I'm seeing a lot of patients who are very in tune with anti-inflammation diets um, I have a lot of patients that have spinal arthritis mm-hmm. so they're developing you know total body total neck pain all the way down to the tailbone they're taking turmeric they're you know really focusing on uh, inflammatory, you know, markers in their blood and, and how they can bring those down. And so uh, it's, it's, you know, a lot more accepted now than it used to be. And it's not more common for us to say, okay, let's, let's go a holistic approach. And I think that's really the way to go. I mean, surgery is obviously there for people who need it. And, um, you know, but I, I've always espoused to, um, conservative management first, you know, and conservative management includes, the healthy lifestyle and the dieting and proper weight, you know, before the operating room. Yeah. And you, you mentioned AI there and robotics. Do, do, on what side of the coin do you sit in terms of whether AI is going to eventually take over the role of the surgeon and the medical practitioner? Or do you feel like there's always going to be a requirement for a sort of human interface, if you like, uh, or, or humanoid? You know, I think, um, so I use robotics in my practice. So I started um, using spine robotics a couple of years ago to put in spinal screws. So I, I did adopt it. I do remember being at a conference about 10 years ago and seeing the robot presented. And I thought that will never happen. It's never going to happen. But, you know, now I'm using it a couple of years later. <laughs> um, I do think, though, yeah. that uh, you will always need a surgeon or a human or you know, there is that, you know, that pendulum that swings, you know, where you become too technologically driven and then you lose the human capacity. And I think, you know, you do always need to have the human touch no matter what it is. So I don't think robots will ever fully take over. I think we're always going to be, um, we're always going to have a need for sure. How old are your children? Sorry, if you don't mind me asking. Uh, so my kids are 13, 12 and 10. 13, 12, and 10. Okay. Um, and in terms of their career trajectory, particularly your eldest, I guess they're thinking about, you know, what careers they might want to pursue. Is medicine something that you would advise, would want them to go into at this stage, considering, you know, the um, the, the rise of, of robotics and AI and all the other things, and, and also the, the stresses on, on the medical force as well, or uh, are you, would you gently be nudging <laughs> in a slightly different gen, uh, uh, direction? Yeah. You know, it's a really interesting question. I've been asked that question so many times about my daughters, especially I have the two oldest are daughters. 
Um, and people have asked me, you know, would you advise your daughters to go into medicine? What are your thoughts about it? It's a really tough question. And I think it honestly depends on each child's personality. Um, you know, I think medicine, it really is a calling. It is such a long road and wrought with so many different obstacles that, you know, if one of my daughters really wants to do it, I would 110 support her path. Um, that being said, I want them to fully understand what they're getting into, you know, because there are a lot of things that your friends in business and your friends in law aren't, are never going to deal with, you know, and they're never going to take somebody's life into their hands. And, um, so, so I think that, um, I would fully support them. You know, one of my kids really doesn't want to do anything with medicine. She's more interested in business. Um, but my middle child has really expressed an interest in neurosurgery and, you know, and in medicine. And so I want to foster that interest. But I also want to be cautious and show her. I mean, I think one of the things that um, is the biggest accolade is if your child wants to follow in your footsteps. To me, that's that's really just that says it all. You haven't destroyed the profession for them mentally, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, I have so many friends whose parents are doctors and they want nothing to do with it, you know. And um, so I feel like hopefully I've shown her that you can have a balance and you can have multifaceted life and. You can be good at several things. Um, and I hope I've instilled that in her. And, you know, with the way things are changing, I feel like I don't even know what job they're going to have because at their age, it may not even be created now. You know, they're going to yeah. have some probably specialization, even within medicine, that's, you know, robotics driven fellowship or some sort of track in medical school that's AI driven or something, you know, something. So I think. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see where, where the pendulum swings. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm chatting to people of various age groups right now and they're asking me this question. So I'm trying to garner as many responses as possible from people in various fields, just to get an idea of, you know, uh, what, what the perspectives are, uh, what, what, what the, the thinking is in, in various specialties, because it is, uh, a hugely disruptive time, a very exciting time. I'm like an eternal optimist. I just think medicine's going to get better as a result of AI and machine learning. We're already seeing that in both clinical and non-clinical hospital environments. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. But you're right. I think the the job descriptions and the job opportunities are going to vastly change. Um, like j even looking at myself, you know, who would have thought that there would be a role for a a general practitioner who espouses the benefits of eating well in a public health arena using social media as a platform you know it's just uh you can't really predict these things no and that's the beauty of life i think it's so malleable you know and it's so dynamic and um and we can do so many things we can be so multifaceted that um that's where that's the beauty in life i mean you know who would have ever thought an indian woman could be a neurosurgeon and be an author and be a mother of three. And, you know, so you just, um, you kind of have to do the things that feel right to you and, um, you know, and whether people view it as the norm or not, I don't think it really matters anymore. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, thank you so much for writing. What a, what is a, a wonderful piece. I, I, I love your writing style. I think people are going to absolutely in, enjoy it and come away inspired um, from it. And I think how you've packaged purpose, determination, discipline um, is, is wonderful. And, and using your own story and, and being vulnerable with all the things that you've shared, I think is, um, has been fantastic. So yeah, I can't wait for uh other versions of it let's say uh beyond the 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 written word i'd love to see it in a different form but um but yeah no congrats it's it's wonderful thank you so much it's been such a pleasure coming on with you and um talking about the book and obviously congrats to you too and all of your successes so inspiring to watch you as well i appreciate it thanks shuri Thank you so much for listening to today's episode with Dr. Sheree Dewan. I hope you leave feeling inspired and refreshed for whatever lays ahead for you. I will see you here next time.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.